Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Are you all ready for some science? Yay. Claire? <laughs> Sorry, I'm holding my head in my hands. You yeah, are, I mean, yes. Is that because yes, you're ready? That's because you're so course, ready. Because I'm so ready. Concentrating ready. hard. Chris, born excellent, ready. Excellent. Well, um, yes, my name is Chris, and boy, do I have some science for you. Um, now, regular listeners may know how... I'm a physicist, and I often talk about physics things. And Claire, what is what are my physics stories usually like? Um, I'm just trying to cast my mind back to your last physics story. Um, normally, oh. I get three minutes in, and then you lose me, and but you always bring me back. Yeah, your brow's not furrowed enough. To yeah, be, to be putting yourself in in a Chris physics story. <laughs> All I'm right, say. Well, I, I'm gonna. <laughs> I gotta try. Yeah, you know, usually yeah, there's something like you know modified Newtonian dynamics and dark matter and this kind of stuff. But today I'm gonna like I'm gonna bring it down a little bit, and I'm gonna talk about the physics of water dripping. That sounds really interesting. I mean, everyone can relate to water dripping is, and that annoying sound that it that it can make. I mean, sometimes it's nice. Sometimes it's a nice sound. Is this physics time, or is it is it plumbing? Oh. <laughs> It's a little it's, bit of both. Yeah, There's a lot of physics yeah. in plumbing. Yeah. Well, that's true. Yeah. That's true. How do you make the water go uphill? That's yeah. the question. Is that what you're going to answer? No, no, no. We're going to look at why why water dripping makes that that characteristic plinking sound, which you say can be pleasant, um, is actually used for water torture as well. But um, let's just ignore <laughs> that. Um, and it's and it's a question that's been plaguing physicists for. Over 100 years or something, right? This is true. This is true. We shall examine this. We, be, we believe they believe there is an answer. Um, they've proven the answer. And also some ideas on how to how to stop it making that noise. And spoiler alert, I do a very interesting experiment. You go off site and do an experiment. That's my dedication These are my favourite Chris physics stories <laughs> where you actually get down and roll up your sleeves and do the physics um, in the bathroom. That's right. <laughs> okay. Speaking of doing things in the bathroom, <laughs> Stu, what have you got for us? Well, they say they say that oil and water don't mix, but we're mixing them together in this episode of Lost in Science. I'm talking about space grease. And if you don't know what that is, well, you'll just have to really stay tuned because I can explain it in much more detail later in the show. But there is a whole bunch of grease in space. You can fry your chips in it. Yeah. I'm well, trying to think you'd of... have to go and get it first. <laughs> I'm trying to think of some um, some joke about the final frontier. The the frying frontier. The frying frontier. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> doesn't quite work. Well, that sounds great, Stu. Uh, Claire. Well, I'm talking about how dirty public transport is today. Um, there's been some new research to come out of Hong Kong, which tracks... Um, the the germs that are on people's hands, the bacteria that are on people's hands when they are um, on public transport, like trains. And so what do they do, like tie little transponders to the germs back and then track <laughs> them through the subway system? Is that <laughs> um, No, they managed to get a whole lot of brave volunteers to ride the subway in the morning and in the afternoon and then they tested, they swabbed their hands 
to check what sort of um, what sort of germs were on what sort of lines, and if there's any um, if if there's any difference. And spoiler alert, there is. Wow. Yeah. Well, so I'm also going to give you some very practical advice. If you do use public transport and you are a bit of a germaphobe, I'll give you some practical advice for what you can do to keep away from those germs. So if you listen to this on the train now, don't freak out, but um, stay tuned, essentially, because there, there is some silver lining at the end of this quaddy rainbow. And if you are listening in Melbourne, a reminder that we're having a trivia night for Science Week. It's a Lost in Science trivia night on Monday the 11th of August, is that correct? On Monday the 13th of August at That's the Birmingham right. in Fitzroy. Come down from 6.30 and we'll kick off at about 7.30. There's a $20 entrance charge and all proceeds are going to 3CR. To keep us on the air. See you there. Now, on with the show. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science, and we're talking dripping water. Um, the well, that's well, a that's a very good impersonation. Well, <laughs> oh, Stu, stop okay. showing off. Okay, so no, like Stu was just doing a very good impersonation of dripping tap, dripping yeah, water. That that was just with his face. The point is <laughs> my finger. Any finger. Yeah, the, the point is, it is a very characteristic sound that we all know very well. What actually makes that sound? Why does it make that sound? Now, Ooh. this may not seem very interesting to you, but it is a question <laughs> that has interested physicists for a long time. Really? Yeah. The first, well, the uh, the whole idea. Of, better to do. <laughs> okay. Well, the first like splashes, like dripping, was first actually studied without the actual sound. Um, first publication seems to appear in 1908. Uh, wow. Arthur Mason Worthington published a work called A Study of Splashes, which included photographs of splashing. I didn't actually start studying the sounds till about 1920. Um, but there's been a new paper published recently, published in the journal Nature, um, not an insignificant <laughs> journal, by Samuel Phillips from the University of Cambridge and his colleagues. And this it combines. Is 110 years of publications in the making, on. Yeah. yeah. It combines right. high speed video with sound recording and mathematical modelling. These are three things that we all love. <laughs> okay, so question is, first of all, let's see what happens when water drips, when it hits, a drop of water hits a surface a, a surface of water. So um, Does it have to be a surface of water? It does, doesn't it? Yeah, like, yeah, it's going to hit like a container of water. It does, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so a water drop, when it hits a surface, it creates, as you'd imagine, a little crater or a cavity, Okay. Um, and then a little bubble forms at the bottom of the cavity, mm-hmm. uh, and then the cavity rebounds. Like it, what happens is a thin column rises out of the centre of it, and that then drops back down, and then ripples kind of spread out. And that's that's basically the process that you have if you like, photograph a drip, a standard drip, at a high speed. Drip. So did they yeah. have a standard? Did they actually have, have a standard, standard size? No, there's not a standard SI unit of drip, <laughs> but there is a standard size drip. We'll get to that. Um, so the question is: in that whole process, where does the sound come from? Where does that can't do it. Where does that sound come from? Well, it turns out that it is the bubble, the bubble that forms at the bottom of the cavity. Mm. So when they t- when they photographed this at high speed and they videoed it, they found that it um, the bubble actually, like as soon as it's pinched off, it sort of it starts to expand and then it oscillates backwards and forwards in size, volume oscillations. Uh, and if you look at the frequency that that oscillates at, 
um, that is the same as the sound that is produced. Wow. Like you can get it from the mathematical equations or they actually videoed, they could see the oscillations. So it's um, actually a bubble that's now contained underwater, like it is, there's, it's a closed off bubble. Yeah, just underneath the cavity. Just but it's a very small bubble. Cavity. It's only about 0.7 of a millimetre in size. That's still, oh no, that isn't that. That big, isn't it? It's not that big. It's no. less, less than the millimeter. Wow. So it may cause you to ask, yeah. well, how does it make such a loud sound? How does it make a loud sound in such a small bubble? Particularly outside the water. Yeah. So this is the other part of the, the calculation. In this paper, what they what they calculate is that like water, as you may know, is mostly in incompressible fluid. It's basically incompressible <laughs> fluid. Mm-hmm. Surely. So when this bubble um, underneath the like especially the underneath the bottom of the cavity when it oscillates in size it pushes the surface of the water up and so it's actually the surface of the water becomes kind of uh oscillating as well uh-huh. due to this bubble movement and that's what causes it to be still be heard outside the water so does that mean the water is amplifying the sound the water on top of the bubbles amplifying the sound it's not amplifying it there's actually a loss in volume if you have a microphone under the water what they call a hydrophone um then, yeah, it is... Uh, well, it's louder under the it's water. It's louder under the water. But it's not as much drop-off as you'd expect going out of the water to the surface of the air because the, the water itself is, is oscillating. Mm. Mm. See, it is interesting. It is. Now, mm. so what, what use is this? Well, there was a suggestion in published in 1989 that hydrophones could be used to measure rainfall in the ocean by recording the sounds of rain falling on the ocean. Um, and that would have required a detailed knowledge of how the sound was produced. You need to know, like, how loud the sound is or how what for a certain volume of rain. Um, but, you know, they... they the um, researchers published this paper have also suggested, you know, you can help this perhaps to reduce the annoying sound of dripping water as well. So, okay, so the bubbles do only appear, the bubble that makes a noise only appears under certain circumstances. So the drop has to be the right size. It seems to be between one and five millimetres in diameter. Wow. And you also need sufficient room beneath the cavity, the little cavity that opens up for a bubble to form. Uh, yes. So there's those conditions. Also, you need sufficient surface tension um, to for for a bubble to form. So if you've got like um, water with detergent in it or something like that, that's going to break the surface tension. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, and that's an experiment that <laughs> I did at home. <laughs> Claire, can you roll the tape? Okay, so we're recording this in the shower, of course, the best acoustics in the house. And I have a saucepan and a wet rag that I'm going to drip into the saucepan. So hopefully we should get some nice plinking sounds. That's my little assistant there helping. Now is we'll put some dishwashing liquid in the in the saucepan. Uh, this being a surfactant should reduce the surface tension and then dampen the uh, the oscillations and the bubble formation. So let's try that there. Let's squeeze in and mix it all up. Okay, so that's mixed in really well, and so it's gonna be take two now with the dishwashing liquid. Okay, so you can still hear the the uh, water impacting the surface, but not as much plinking 
as before. That is, that is science right there. Right, so uh, what, do you, what do you think? Are you convinced by my experiment? I think that was incredible. I, I, I was a non-believer beforehand. If no. ever I wanted to drip uh, water into another vessel of water without being caught, I know now I've got to fill that up with detergent as well. Or if you, like, have a bucket, you know, that in the, under a drip, yeah. and it's, it's really annoying that plink, plink sound. How does it go, Stu? <laughs> yeah, that sound. You'll know now how to, how to stop it. Or you could just, I guess you could just fix the leak. Uh, yeah, maybe you could, you know, but, but you know, if you're renting, it takes a while for these things to get fixed. Exactly. <laughs> Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, I don't know if you remember, but a couple of weeks ago, Chris was talking about finding organic molecules on Mars. Do you remember that, Chris? Yeah, I did. I didn't find them. You didn't uh, personally find them? No. No. Um, which could mean the possibility possibility of life, either, in, either previously or currently, on the Red Planet. But as we mentioned during that story, the concept of organic chemicals is a specific term used in chemistry to denote molecules that contain carbon rather than things that are directly generated by biology. But yeah, yeah. Um, and not just things that are for the organic food store down the road. No, that's, no, <laughs> that's all, something different no. as well. That's something yeah. different. So different. Um, we usually connect the words organic with biology because biology is based on carbon as its primary energy currency, at least as far as life on Earth has shown. But space itself is full of organic compounds, uh, which have been directly sampled from various space-borne objects. So one of the most commonly found uh, chemicals in space is formaldehyde, which is a bit of a toxic substance. But it is a carbon-rich molecule? Absolutely, mm. yeah. Um, it's common enough on Earth, but as I say, it's also toxic. But So, so in space, you, like, it, it could kill you, like if you're out in space. <laughs> yeah, if you breathed it in while you're in space, <laughs> yeah, it yeah. could definitely okay, have a bad okay, effect. Yeah. Don't do that. Where yeah. is it in space? Where, it, where it's you... attached to comets and things like that. So cool. It's, it's, is, it, yeah. is it being burned? Like it's, mm, it's... it's kind of, well, it gets burnt off as the comets off. approach um, the sun, which is mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. the tail of a comet actually is. But, yeah, it's, it's in frozen lumps of ice and stuff like that. So. It isn't... Um, it isn't preserving specimens in space mm, like, it, like it is in uh, like it is on earth not as far as we know they haven't found any other kind of organic <laughs> organic uh, molecules uh, you know uh, turned into organisms in any way uh-huh. um, but recently uh, there's been some collaborative research between the University of New South Wales and a university in Turkey and they've succeeded in creating recreating another 
common organic space chemical, grease. Grease lightning? Just grease. So Turkey is making grease. Turkey is making grease. It's great. <laughs> I yeah. to clarify that. Um, and also the University of New South Wales is making grease. Uh, but the st- studying the formation of organic grease in space, the astronomers were able to imitate the process in a laboratory and make their own grease at home. Um, these greasy blobs are a kind of hydrocarbon. Can we all make this at home? I very much doubt it, <sighs> unless we've got a vacuum tube and some uh, carbon-rich plasma to inject into it. Oh, that's... I mean, you've you've just described Chris's um, (laughs) That's Chris's kitchen, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, hang on. Is is grease a technical term? They're they're just calling it grease. (laughs) As I say, it's a kind of hydrocarbon, but it's different to the aromatic compounds we may be familiar with that are commonly used as fuel, among other things. So the aromatic hydrocarbons are the ones that smell like solvents, basically. Um, This kind of carbon is known as aliphatic carbon, don't know because if it's greasy, fatty carbon, but it's aliphatic carbon. A l i p h a t. A a l i p h a t i c. Yes. Um, And this this greasy stuff accounts for somewhere between a quarter and a half of all the carbon in the galaxy. So there may be about ten billion trillion trillion tons of this aliphatic carbon floating around in the Milky Way. Is this just the universe's WD forty? Well, how things keep just yeah, how things (laughs) keeps everything lubricated, keeps it keeps it spinning (laughs) around. I don't think that's how it works because it's floating in open space. So, if you were like driving through space in your little space car, would you get blobs of grease on your windscreen? Well, they actually said that it probably wouldn't have much effect on craft traveling through space, although accumulation of the substance could make ships heavier. So in space, there's no such thing as greased lightning. It's greased. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, anyway, they used their own samples to figure out uh, how much light absorbed and then which wavelength, which wavelengths it absorbed. So they could actually look at distant stars and figure out, based on the light reaching them, how much of this grease was was wow. in the way. So, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty amazing thing that they actually did by actually making this substance in their lab. They went, oh, well, this is how much light it absorbs and this is the frequencies it yeah. absorbs at. So now we know how much there is in space. And that's a lot of grease. So it's not so much that the Milky Way galaxy is like the creamy, buttery way galaxy. The, <laughs> the greasy way. Yeah. yeah. Science. The final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. When was the last time you took public transport, Chris? Today, actually. And um, 
Do you think you were exposed to germs as a result of your travelling on public transport? Or maybe, I mean, you're a little bit under with the weather at the moment. Maybe you were the one. I was spreading the germs. You were spreading yeah, yeah. the germs. I'm, I'm more on the supply side of the equation here. <laughs> but not always, right? <laughs> no, not always. It's probably how I got the germs in the first place, let's be honest. Well, that's what most um, office workers think and love to talk about, right? Um, people who take trams, trains and buses, um, as soon as they get sick, public transport is the first thing that they blame. And I'm not just saying you. I think that's probably the case with most people. Ferries as well as trams, trains and buses? <laughs> um, I don't know how many people take ferries, how many ferry routes there are out there. but uh, There's a lot in Sydney. Mm. Well, there's not that, that many, but... Um, Several, several. several. They are, are, they are in fact, are famous for their ferries, but, you know. <laughs> anyway, I, I guess it makes a lot of intuitive sense. Lots of people crowded together, sharing germs between one another. Um, but how do you think those germs are shared? Um, is it through uh, people like yourself coughing on everyone else, Chris? I or- try not to, but, yeah, could be. <laughs> um, what about through touch through the railings and the handholds that you have to hold on to um, when you're on trams. I was always under the impression that it was more likely that I would put my hand in someone else's germs by touching, you know, a pole to hang on to the train or something like that rather than get an aerosol because most people are, you know, reasonably careful about sneezing and coughing in public. Yeah, but they cough into their hand and then they put their hand on the pole. That's exactly That's exactly my fear. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let me ask you this. Do you ever wash your hands straight after you've been on the tram or the train? No. Mm. Well, new research out of Hong Kong suggests maybe uh, you should do that. (laughs) So the researchers took arguably one of the busiest train subways in the world, Hong Kong, and um, got a whole lot of volunteer test subjects um, and sent them around the subway lines. After they finished their half an hour of travel on the subway, holding on to things, just acting normally as you would um, on a subway, they swabbed their hands and um, and had a look at what sorts of what sort of microbiome, what sort of microbes, bacteria, viruses, what was present uh, on these on the um, the travellers' hands, and whether they were specific to a subway line. Um, they also looked at whether they were harmless bacteria, and a lot of them were, um, or if they were pathogenic or disease-causing bacteria. And the other thing they looked at was whether they were antibiotic-resistant, so whether any of these bacteria were carrying genes for antibiotic, res- antibiotic resistance. Uh, they tested the commuter's hands both in the morning and then also in the evening. And um, they found a big difference in the types of bacteria that they found on people's hands in the morning compared to the afternoon. You see, in the morning, people that take subway lines um, were found to have very specific types of bacteria on their hands. So the bacteria, there were, there were specific, unique bacteria in, in the morning. So it's like you catch the green line then you've got the green line bacteria. Oh, okay. So it's, it's, it's specific to that line or? It's specific to that line, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So green line um, is only on the green line. Orange line, you get the orange line bacteria. <laughs> You're not getting a mix of both. Um, and But 
then when people took the train in the evening um, and they swabbed them again, they found that all of those unique bacteria that they found on their hands in the morning were now all like mixed up in some sort of bacterial soup. So if you're catching the green line in the evening, you've got the orange line and the red line and the yellow line and the blue line, all of those bacterias in on your train line coming back. So all the bacteria are in unique are on unique train lines coming in in the morning. Yep. And then they all get muddled up and they all go and they're all different. Oh sorry, and and they're all in this like this soup of bacteria going back so in, kind of gets, in the evening. Kind of gets homogenized throughout throughout the, the working day. day. Yeah. And then sorts itself out by the next morning. And then sorts itself out. Or do by they the next or morning. do they clean the trains overnight? Well, yeah. I think probably both. But like even the people going home, you think would be coming home, taking home all their collected bacteria and but they only bring back one strain. Mm. That's kind of weird. That is kind of weird, isn't it? Um, now, this is fine when you're talking about bacteria that are non-harmful um, or as we call them, commensal bacterias. But what the researchers found was the effect was most pronounced with bacteria that had um, antibiotic-resistant genes. So in the morning, there were only a few train lines that were found to have bacteria with antibiotic-resistant genes in them. But in the evening, um, you could see these antibiotic-resistant genes and bacteria in all of the train lines. They hadn't developed antibiotic resistance during the day. It's not like... No, they hadn't developed this antibiotic resistance. They'd just been transferred from one line right. to the other. Now, this is Hong Kong and, you know, you've got 5 million people who are taking the subway every day. So I imagine in Australian cities, things might be a little bit different. But the researchers were clear to say that um, the higher traffic on metro lines did not carry a higher health risk um, in terms of the disease-causing bacteria or the antibiotic-resistant genes. So maybe in Australia we do see the same sort of mixing up during the day. Um, But the other thing about Hong Kong's train system is that one of the metro lines in Hong Kong crosses um, mainland China. So it crosses the mainland China and Hong Kong border. And many people use this line to commute from the mainland into Hong Kong every day. And what the researchers found was that there was actually more antibiotic-resistant genes um, in the bacteria found on this line specifically um, than the lines that were in Hong Kong. So especially for the antibiotic tetracycline, which um, which they hypothesised may be due to the fact that um, in mainland China you've got high amounts of use of tetracycline in things like pig feedlots, in China, so you've got um, you've got more potential um, antibiotic resistance to this tetracycline over there. Um, so yeah, very fascinating to think how bacteria can take the fast train to a whole new destination in the course of one day. Um, and I guess for everyone listening, if you do want to reduce your chance of getting sick on public transport. I would say maybe take the train in the morning and then um, walk home in the afternoon. Sure. It'll keep you healthy. It'll keep you healthy.
And that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is, of course, recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. If you are so willing, please email us on lostinsci at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. We're also on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. You can also find us on your friendly local podcast device so you can listen to past episodes. Uh, if you listen to us on iTunes or Google Podcasts, I think you can give us a good rating and review. That will help us lift us up in the search rankings so other people can find us and share the love, the science love. Um, or you can just listen to us on the radio when, once again, same time every week, Claire, Stu, and Chris get Lost in Science! science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.